0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today.
1: Is hair a material? Our biscuits are material. Our crystals are material. Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Our eggs are material. Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, at you guys. To... <laughs> and yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Real Talk. This is the podcast where I, a clueless material scientist, chat to people who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I'm joined by Beth Monroe. Beth is a Roman archaeologist specialising in the recycling of materials used in the built environment, particularly the material which is the topic of this episode, lime. I started by asking Beth, the Roman archaeologist, the obvious question so today we're asking what have the romans ever done for us <laughs> in terms of concrete especially right? <laughs> yeah, because definitely. We, we're talking about lime and quicklime but that is an ingredient to a material that we would recognize now as being a concrete like material that you could build stuff with
0: yeah definitely so lime is a component of roman concrete of roman plaster and mortars um But lime powder was also used extensively in agriculture um, in the Roman period um, because it acts to neutralize uh, acidity in soils and so gives you um, more fertile soils. And that was actually how it was used in the uh, medieval to all the way through to the sort of 18th century, 19th or beginning of the 19th century in in England as well. um, Was used as a a fertilizer and so large scale lime production for use um, in this sort of expanding agrarian um,
1: sector in in, in England. Mm, Okay, so what actually is lime? What are we actually talking about? Because it (laughs) seems like it can be used really widely.
0: Yeah, so lime chemically is uh, calcium oxide, so um, CAO, and it's produced um, when you take a calcium carbonate, uh, and you um, essentially decompose that using heat. And so calcium carbonate is, uh, commonly we think of it as limestone, but it's also found in shells. And so when you heat up limestone in a kiln to temperatures between about 900 and 1,000 degrees centigrade, um, over a period of four to six days of continuous firing, carbon dioxide is released from the calcium carbonate, and it is transformed into calcium oxide, which basically turns the rock into a a fine white powder.
1: Okay, and then you put this fine white powder together with other ingredients to make something that's a bit like concrete.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so you mix lime with aggregate and water uh, to make uh, a concrete. Now, Roman concrete also had uh, volcanic ash in it, um, really famously known as pozzolana. Um, it's a po- it's a it's a volcanic uh, ash that's found uh, especially around the Bay of Naples, and this gave uh, Roman concrete the ability to set underwater. Um, so this was how a lot of port structures were built in the Roman period. So uh, they get these massive ports all around the empire, and this was sort of their secret ingredient in their, in their concrete as, as well as the lime. Um, they also use lime as a stabilizer when they make glass. Um, and so it helps the glass just become kind of a bit tougher. Um, so they add lime um, to
1: their glass as well. Wow. Okay. So it's really multi-purpose.
0: Yeah. So lime is is. I mean, lime's kind of an unsung hero, right? I mean, lime is used in so many different materials and production and 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 you know chemical reactions, but we rarely. We rarely get to hear about lime. Definitely. Uh, kind of as a material itself. Um, but it is kind of this like amazing, what a wonder material.
1: Yeah, so were the Romans the first to actually discover it?
0: No, so lime had been known about for thousands of years, I think sort of through experimental methods, but the Romans were the first to produce lime on a sort of industrial scale and to use it in mortars. There is a story that the Greeks thought that lime was a way to make fire. okay, um, And so allegedly the Greeks used the heat that was generated when you mix quick lime with water to create fire, because when you mix lime powder with water, um, it produces temperatures of up to 150 degrees centigrade. So um, that heat that is emitted from it can potentially be used to then sort of ignite. And um, we have a couple of stories uh, from the Roman world where it was used because of its caustic nature it was used uh, both as as a weapon and there are also stories that come out about perils or dangers of, of using uh, and transporting particularly quicklime cool. so in 80BC it said that the Romans used uh, lime powder as a chemical weapon mm. so threw it at their enemies in battle and um, essentially because it hits the moisture in, in, in you know inside your mouth and in your system it, it will burn oh. um, equally the moisture on your skin it will burn so you know in the yeah. modern day if you're working with lime, you obviously need to take uh, a lot of care you know goggles and gloves and things like that uh, and there's also a story from Theophrastus who tells us, um, and I'll just read you the quote, it's also clear from the following example that uh, lime has a fiery nature for once a ship loaded with clothes was itself burnt when the clothes became wet and caught fire. So I guess then interacting with the lime that this heat that's generated in this in this reaction then caught you know and so then the ship burns. So it's quite interesting to think about how the Romans actually produced, lime and where they produce lime because a lot of the transport systems used in sort of Roman industry were water waterway systems right lots of sea transport river transport but of course there is a risk in transporting lime powder and so you get into this sort of interesting dynamic where you can start to look at where lime kilns are built relative are they are they close to a stone source or are they close to where they're where it's going to be used Um, of course the disadvantage of being away from the stone source is that you then have to transport the stone which is more expensive Mm -hmm. and when lime is produced it loses half of its weight from the stone so immediately you see the advantage of doing it near a kiln site or indeed at a villa site where you've taken the blocks out and you burn it sort of right there um, and then you transport the lime but then of course you have to factor in the risks of getting moisture into your lime and then having it kind of have this heat reaction or indeed spoiling it before you can actually get it to where you want to use it in a mortar or actually even in an agricultural setting. And if you watch a lot of grand designs, which I do, (laughs) you'll see that a lot of people um, are quite interested in using lime mortars and lime plaster and lime render in eco-friendly building nowadays. Uh, The production of lime to be used as a mortar or plaster has a a lower environmental impact initially than concrete does to produce. Lime render plaster mortar is also bonds to loads of things and so you can you can get quite interesting finishes so you can use glass aggregate and kind of make give a sort of sparkly wall equally it'll bond to whatever other building material you're using brick wood whatever it bonds really well um, and it's incredibly long lasting I mean you know you go to Rome today and you see the Colosseum is still standing and that is that is largely due to lime mortar which is incredibly long wearing and it's self-healing as well isn't it it is yeah so one of the major problems with concrete is when you get a crack in, in, in a concrete building it can be you know cause a lot of instability in the building. But in a in if you use a lime mortar, um, what's really interesting when you get cracks is if moisture is introduced, it then sort of finds free lime and will kind of sort of rebond and reheal those cracks. So lime mortars respond to the movements of buildings but then equally
1: will sort of almost reset themselves. Amazing. So is this really the reason why these old Roman buildings are still standing today?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was partially because they also had really amazing architectural and engineering strategies. But yeah, I mean, the Pantheon in Rome is still standing because it is, has lime mortar. Yeah. Um, and it is just rock hard. And actually, if you've ever been on excavation and you, you know, you're kind of trying to clean off, for example, a chunk of mortar, it's actually really, really difficult to get it away from the, from the bricks or the stones that it's, um, that it's bonded to. It is, it is super rock hard. Nice. So the Pantheon is the oldest, largest freestanding dome that is still standing today. And when you look at the construction of the Pantheon, it's super interesting. If you look at how they actually built up the side of the dome, they kept altering the levels of aggregate. In their mortar to make it lighter as they went up, sort of along the dome towards, and the the dome also has an oculus in it. So it's got this thirty foot uh, hole in the middle. Where the rain, you know, if you're in there in the Pantheon when it's raining, it's amazing. The rain just kind of comes through the hole. But so that's part that that is the kind of final piece of the kind of weight distribution is having that hole. But as you move up towards that hole, what they do is they they
1: minimize and minimize and
0: minimize the aggregate that they use in the mortar.
1: Hello, this is Anna from the future. Beth from the future has asked me to clarify that the Pantheon is in fact a concrete structure with lime used in both the concrete and the mortars that were used to bond the bricks involved in the construction together.
0: And then right up near the top of the dome, they also use, they put in coffers to then again, relieve some of the stress of that construction. So that is, that was how they achieved that. And that was, you know, through, obviously they had their, their lime mortar, but it was to do with their levels of aggregate and their, in the mortar mix. Wow, um, that's incredibly Which is which, is, which is amazing. So yeah. they
1: understood composite materials and kind of the different mechanical properties that you could achieve with the different ratios.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and the fact that they that they're also using lime, you know, to in in glass to stabilize glass, really demonstrates the high level of technology and skill that they've got with these materials. I mean, they understand exactly you know, how much
1: they need. Okay, so if we were standing in the Roman period and we were looking at a lime kiln, mm. what would it look like? Who would be working on it?
0: Right, so, so lime kilns were either pits dug into the ground or they were built using a superstructure of brick and tile. So a lot of the kilns that I've looked at are about three metres in diameter, so they're circular. And they contain two parts. So the bottom part of the lime kiln is where you put um, your charcoal, and then there's a shelf, and that shelf is either made of wood or is made of not a stone. It sort of depends. You can have a brick kind of level, or you can have a kind of clay kind of level that you put in there. But anyway, and then you load your limestone on top of that shelf. Um, So if it's wood, that shelf actually just burns away. But when the limestone that's at the bottom – Uh, interacts directly with the flames Um, it sort of takes on a kind of glassy texture so what you don't actually want is the limestone blocks to come into contact directly with the fire Um, and so it's it's above that where you get your powder so why don't I just read Cato and then if you you feel like you want to cut it or whatever then we can please okay so Cato (laughs) uh, in book 38 of his uh, on treatise on agriculture, he writes: "Build the lime kiln ten feet across, twenty feet from top to bottom, sloping the sides into a width of three feet at the top." And so these are
1: Roman feet. Um, What's the difference between a Roman uh, foot?
0: Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess. That, that's, they... that's a Google. They're smaller. Smaller. Uh, yeah. All right. Here we go. So one Roman foot is equivalent to 0.97 English feet.
1: Oh, okay. So it's or not. two hundred and
0: ninety-six millimeters, right? Well, it's
1: quite a big foot because
0: yeah.
1: that's like a thirty-centimeter ruler. What's a what's an English foot? <laughs> uh, twelve inches, thirteen yeah. inches. Yeah, okay, twelve oh, I don't inches. Know. No, I'm a right? no, it's <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, you know you're right it's 12 inches i'm not a millennial so. but, that's but a, i grew up in metric
1: so yeah that's a 30 centimeter ruler which seems like quite big i think my foot would be smaller than that
0: yeah that's right but a male foot i think is is about that size right oh,
1: of is course that, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the classic <laughs> that's the default yeah, the default anyway sorry um, i interrupted you with no, my foot yeah, question
0: it's fine no that's fine it's fine it's fine um In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com achieve today. Okay, so uh, Katie goes on. If you burn with only one door, make a pit inside large enough to hold the ashes so that it will not be necessary to clear them out. Be careful to keep the fire burning constantly. Do not let it die down at night or any other time. So I'm just going to pause here because this is quite interesting because this implies a team of workmen. I mean, you asked me how many people it takes to run a lime kiln. I'm obviously at least two. (laughs) But probably a team of three or four people um,
1: because you've got to have a night shift and a a sort of day shift. I love this idea that someone would just be reading this passage and then go out into their (laughs) land and build a furnace.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, or... Go tell their slave to build a furnace. Oh yeah, okay. But it's yeah.
1: quite, but it
0: but it is interesting, right? Because it I mean the motivations for Cato writing there are many and they're debated. Um, but it is interesting to think that that a landowner or a newly sort of somebody's newly acquired land and is going to go you know make fertilizer for their land, yeah, is having their slaves do this and sort of say build it like this and don't do this and
1: yeah, it's it's quite yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. I love it. So. After the fall of the Romans, we lost lots of technological... Hmm. Uh, we lost lots of the Roman technology and then we had to rediscover it. Was this technology lost or have we always kept this tradition of making lime and using it?
0: I mean, it's a great question. I... Uh, The short answer is no, I don't think this technology was lost. And I think the reason for that is because there was so much statuary that could be profitably burnt for construction or agriculture. In the Theodosian Code from the 5th century, we actually, which is a a series of law codes, um, it was written in the Byzantine, under the Byzantine Empire in the East. But this this is a passage about the penalties for destroying buildings and making lime without permission. And indeed, apparently, there was so much lime burning that was going on, they actually said, you've got to do it outside the city, you can't do it inside the city for the health of the city.
1: Wow.
0: So I mean, this is well, so this is in the fifth century, but there's some really interesting work um, by an Australian scholar, uh, Michael Greenhouse, who has looked at lime kilns right the way through the Islamic period, um, to the Middle Ages. And then of course, I, as I already mentioned, in the Middle Ages, you know, in this country, we start to get the construction of really large lime kilns so no it seems like a technology that that does continue i love this idea that
1: (laughs) like because they were using it so prolifically and they were trying to get all the raw material which was the limestone or you know the the I love <laughs> this idea that you just walk outside one day and someone would have, like, dismantled your wall and started uh, burning it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stolen all your statues. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, I'm going to read the Theodosian Code passage because it's great because it's literally this, right? If any person, therefore, should take away columns or marble from monuments, or should throw down stones for the purpose of burning them into lime, only after the time of the consulship of Dalmatius and Xenophilus, of course, he should shall pay the account of the fisc a pound of gold for each tomb thus violated after the case has been investigated by the court of your prudence. Those persons shall also be held liable to the same penalty who demolish a monument or diminish its ornamentation. So, uh, like, loads of detail there, but, like, yeah, I mean, this idea that people are like, hey, nobody's using this. I'm going to take it and, like, make some lime out of it. Um, And this is within an urban context, obviously, Um, but... It's sort of interesting to think that, like, by the 5th century, people are, like, <laughs> salivating at the prospect of being able to make lime.
1: <laughs> you know, like from, from older buildings. Yeah, um, and it must be really annoying as an archaeologist, <clears throat> right? Because, like, so much of the interesting artwork and buildings and stuff has been dismantled. Yeah,
0: yeah. Or, I mean, another thing that's going on that you get out of this passage is that they are extensively reusing things, right? And so you'll get, in the urban environment, you get amazing bits of stone reuse from earlier monuments but it is equally frustrating because you don't really know where that's come from mm. you'd be looking at a wall and there could be like a you know bit of like a, a tombstone like shoved into a wall you know and oh wow where did that originally stand and obviously if it has if it has a on it we can read that and sort of you know get some you, know, you get a date from it and stuff like that but it's it's just things were much more Moveable, and I would go back to this recycling thing. You know, people—the reuse and the recycling—was ubiquitous um, throughout the Roman period. So yeah, so we can learn a lot from them. <laughs> we can learn a lot from them, indeed. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that that I that I came across that, of course, I hadn't really realized was the term limelight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is literally that if you heat up lime to over two thousand degrees uh, centigrade, it produces light, and this was what was used in theaters before the light bulb to no light way. up stage. Yes, that's and, very cool. And I didn't know that until I was sort of looking up modern facts about
1: lime for this uh, for this podcast. That's a great fact. I know. I love it. I and mean, we
0: just use the term limelight without even really thinking about it. Yeah, but of um, course, it,
1: yeah, being in the limelight is like being in the stage and in the spotlight, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Very, very cool. Yeah.
0: And um, and I, and I love when I go for walks around the countryside, and you come across like Lime Lane or you know Lime Lime Walk, mm-hmm. lime, lime House, Hime, Lime House. London. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and all of those are you know the kind of nomenclature around around this lime industry, and just gives a sense of really the scale of it. Really, you know, through through the sort of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries.
1: Yeah. In this country, which which was yeah, it was big. So there's Roman concrete then that one of the ingredients was lime Mm. we have heard recently about roman concrete kind of having a resurgence because as you said it had this amazing property of being able to solidify in seawater and it has this property of being self-healing are we now trying to mimic what the romans already did in our own constructions or in our own materials technology i think we're too proud to do that
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think, which is my, is totally honest answer. I have a feeling that in this recent, you know, publicity around the Roman concrete, there was real, a real defensiveness from the concrete producers' association or whoever whoever governs that that group of people, in sort of saying, no, 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 but we have come up with, you know, our technology is better. We can solve all these problems with with the way we produce, the way we produce concrete. And so there is this really interesting defensiveness and this sort of weird idea that the Romans were still primitive, you mm. know, in their technology. And, well, that simply isn't true. And I think the more modern industry realizes that, and especially the Romans, I mean, there, there are lots of other civilizations that have been more advanced and more environmentally sensible and sustainable than than we are. Mm. Well, that seems um, like quite a low bar to, pump,
1: yeah. to cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, the defensiveness was like really struck me and I just kind of rolled my eyes and oh, well, whatever, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're not willing to sh- to look at history and to see to see how those innovations worked and they worked for thousands and thousands of years and in an ec- ecologically friendly way, like mm-hmm. if you can't see that, I, you know, is yeah. there any hope for
1: us? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, returning to this question, what have the Romans ever done for us, right? Like a huge amount, and we can actually learn amount. quite a lot from them. A huge amount, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> so if people have enjoyed have enjoyed the podcast and they'd like to see some of this Roman architecture for themselves, where can people go? Where would you recommend is a good place to go and see this material in the flesh?
0: So if people are in, are in London and are interested in seeing a good example of Roman concrete that would have been on a large scale, you can go and visit the Roman amphitheater, which is underneath the Guildhall Art Gallery in the City of London. Of course, Bath is a great place to go to mm-hmm. to see Roman concrete in action. Um, the Roman baths are incredible, and um, and baths, Roman baths in general, utilized loads of of concrete and uh, bonded mortar um, because they had lots of sort of pools and domes in their in their construction. Obviously, everyone should go to Rome <laughs> <laughs> and go visit the Pantheon and so. stare up at its mm-hmm. wondrous dome. Um, there's rumor that they're gonna start charging for the pantheon, or maybe they already have. um so go now before they start <laughs> they start because it is a it's a functional church, so mm-hmm. at the moment is free and because I feel like I wouldn't do justice to my PhD supervisor if I didn't ma- mention the baths of Caracalla in Rome, mm. which are were um, just absolutely enormous imperial built public baths. So of course the Romans bathed, you know, communally. Um, and the remains of the baths of Caracalla are just staggering. Um, they're just outside the city of Rome and they are some of our most amazing some of the most amazing examples of roman concrete but also gives you a sense of the scale of roman architecture and construction
1: well thank you for coming on real talk beth it's been really lovely to chat to you um, you and hear all about the romans um do you have any websites or social media that you'd like to advertise Oh really? Okay. At the moment. So nobody, really just... nobody should follow me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fine. Um, Yeah, no, I don't really in the moment. No, but I will say that at the Institute of Making, hopefully this this autumn, a colleague from UCL and I are going to try to make some lime, <gasps> and then we're going to test we're going to start to test the properties made of different types of limestone uh because we've got lots of questions about you know qualities of lime and and limestone so we're going to try to do some experimental stuff so if we do that i'm sure that will appear on the institute of making blog
1: and social media and stuff amazing i'm looking forward to that yeah awesome well thanks beth (laughs) thank you so that was my chat with the wonderful beth monroe thanks to beth for coming on the show now to continue our questions mini-series on recycling. Scary Boots, aka Schrodinger's Kit, on Twitter, asks, Why can't I recycle black plastic in my home bins, but I can in my work bins? Well, this is actually super interesting. After your recycling arrives at the materials recovery or plastics recycling facility, it gets sorted using optical scanners which rely on near-infrared sensors. Black plastic is given its colour by carbon black pigments and the optical scanners can't detect plastic with these pigments in because they do not allow the scanner's light to pass through. I'm guessing that your work recycling has a different method of sorting their black plastics from their other colour plastics. Secondly, Pete Gallivan asks, what is the difference between HDPE and LDPE? Can one be recycled into the other and vice versa? So these are two acronyms for a type of polymer. It either stands for high-density polyethylene or low-density polyethylene. The high-density stuff is generally used to make bottles for household cleaning products, whereas the low-density stuff is used for things like plastic carrier bags. Both of these materials are polymers, which means that their molecules are made up of long strings of atoms. Now, the low-density polyethylene molecules have big branches coming off the main strand of the molecule, so they can't pack together very closely. Hence, the overall material is lower density compared to the higher density variety. This high density variety has minimal branching off of all the molecules so they tend to be able to lie closer together to form crystals and this makes the material much higher density and also more rigid. Now both high and low density polyethylene are thermoplastics and this means that you can just melt them down and reform them into any other shape that you like. So although recycling doesn't really involve turning high density into low density they are very recyclable materials because of this thermoplastic property. So that's it for this episode of Real Talk but before we go I have a very special announcement to make which is that on Thursday the 4th of October we're going to be doing our first ever Real Talk live event at the Harrison Pub in London's King's Cross. I'll be joined by special guest Zoe Laughlin. Zoe is an artist, maker and all-round materials expert. She's a regular on TV and radio talking about materials and was recently on the BBC's Big Life Fix programme. Zoe is going to come on the podcast to talk to me about ice, so this is an opportunity which absolutely should not be missed. The ticket link is in the show notes for this episode and you can also get the link by following Real Talk on Twitter. That's R-I-A-L Talk. Do also get in touch with more of your wonderful recycling questions. We absolutely love hearing from you. And if you don't have any recycling questions, just send us some photos of your favourite materials. We love that too. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time. So until then, you've been listening to Real Talk and happy recycling. Hold up.